Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. When, in the film Braveheart, William Wallace lies on the torturer's table and uses the last of his strength to cry freedom in anguish and defiance, it would take a cold, cold heart to stop the hairs on the back of your neck from standing on end. William Wallace is just one of dozens of freedom fighters of the past. Men and women who spent their lives, and in many cases gave them, fighting for freedom from tyranny and oppression. Others have included George Washington, Simon Bolivar, Geronimo and Spartacus. Their followers too braved hardship, grave danger and death in the pursuit of freedom. And this is just a fraction of the thousands of wars of independence and liberation that have been waged throughout time. And it's clear that the idea of freedom is a supremely powerful one, a flaming torch which many millions have followed into threat and menace. But the idea of freedom can take many forms. To Trotsky and Lenin, freedom meant doing away with the Russian monarchy and replacing it with Bolshevism, which was hardly any better. The Mexican revolutionary Emiliano Zapata warred for democratic land ownership, freeing peasants from economic feudalism. Still others, like Toussaint Louverture, saw in freedom an end to slavery and led a huge and successful slave revolt in the French colony of Haiti. But despite its many faces, the throwing off of the yokes of oppression and bondage have been possibly one of the most galvanising causes of conflict of all. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Welcome to Why We Fight. Freedom. It's 73 BC, and in a Roman gladiator school at Capua in Italy, a Thracian slave by the name of Spartacus led an audacious escape. With 70 other gladiators, he fought his way free and made for the slopes of Mount Vesuvius, where he began attracting other runaway slaves. At first, the Romans saw these outlaw slaves as nothing more than a nuisance, a policing operation. But Spartacus and his men demolished the first four armed attempts to bring them to heel. As their successes and Roman alarm grew, it's estimated that their numbers swelled to at least 90,000. It eventually took a full eight legions under Crassus and more under Pompey to defeat them. Spartacus died in the fighting, and 6,000 of the survivors were crucified along one of the main routes into Rome, the Appian Way. The Spartacus slave revolt is also known as the Third Servile War, which nods to the fact that there had been two other huge slave revolts not long before this. And it's little wonder why. Slavery has to be the most abject of human conditions. Some historians point out that many Roman slaves lived more comfortable lives than free Roman peasants, which is certainly true. But most did not. Dying in gladiatorial arenas, worked to death in mines 
or forced to labour in fields under a merciless sun. And in any case, slavery is a total absence of freedom, which most of us, thankfully, can barely imagine. But let's take a moment to consider it. You are property. Someone owns you. They can use you in any way they please, and the law in general will back them if you so much as sniffle about it. But it's not the lack of justice you'd worry about if you complained or refused. It would be the iron manacles around your ankles and wrists, the lashes on your back, the meagre rations of third-rate food reduced even further. Slavery is as old as the oldest civilizations, like Sumer in Mesopotamia around 3500 BC. It was a recognised part of society in ancient Greece, Rome, Egypt, China, India and indigenous Mesoamerican and Pacific cultures. In fact, nearly everywhere you look, slavery has been practised. It was most infamously used in the United States and pre-revolution colonies, by the European powers which supplied them, and the West African kingdoms which supplied them. Islamic slavery is less well known, but was prolific, with Muslim civilizations like the Ottoman Empire and Barbary pirates estimated to have made slaves of up to 14 million black Africans, in addition to another million white Europeans. Slavery, then, has a hauntingly long history and was well ingrained in multiple cultures separated by both geography and the expanse of time. Put that alongside the mechanics of power, the provision of food as reward, for example, or the threat of force and injury as punishment, and resisting slavery must have seemed hopeless to most slaves. But when slave revolts did occur, it's blindingly obvious that the yearning for freedom exists even in people born into slavery. In the three servile wars alone, possibly 250,000 slaves rose up to violently challenge their chattel-like existence. It's clear to me that whatever societies used to say about the normality of slavery, the hearts of men and women always hold a flame for freedom, which needs just the smallest opportunity to ignite into a fire. And Toussaint Louverture was no different. The irony for the slaves in Haiti in the 1790s was that they were witnessing the revolution of their French colonial masters. Liberty, egality and fraternity, though, was not extended to them. But these slaves became inspired enough by the revolutions of the United States and France to take freedom for themselves in a bloody slave revolt which erupted in 1791, culminating in a full-blown successful revolution by 1804. Haiti remains the only country in the world to have been created by its own self-freed slaves. But as I mentioned earlier, freedom comes in many forms. Political, religious, economic, judicial, as well as personal. To the American colonists of 1775, the cry of no taxation without representation 
was enough to spark into life another new country. It's a little-known fact that Britons in the UK were paying on average 10 times more tax than their counterparts in the American colonies. But it wasn't really about how much or little they paid. As Benjamin Franklin argued, they weren't opposed to taxes per se, they were opposed to a lack of representation in the British Parliament. How can people be truly free if they're unable to play a role in the government which rules them? This idea of enfranchisement and self-rule swept the world at this time, which you can hear more about in our episode on revolution and ideology. To other freedom fighters, it's about being free of domination by an outside force. William Wallace, of course, fought against the infamous Edward Longshanks in the First Scottish War of Independence, giving the encroaching English their first real bloody nose at the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297. Geronimo was one of the leaders of the Chiricahua Apaches, a Native American tribe which resisted the expanding United States in the late 19th century. He had first fought against Mexico after the Mexican army had murdered his mother, wife and three young children. Then he had to contend with the influx of American settlers who were pushing against his Chiricahua encampments and restricting their hunting grounds and freedom of movement. Eventually, in 1876, after years of warfare with the US Army, the Chiricahuas negotiated peace and were shipped off to an inhospitable reservation in Arizona. Geronimo tried his hand at farming, but he still longed for the freedom of the frontier. He staged three breakouts from the reservation between 1878 and 1884 and earned a fearsome reputation as a cunning and ruthless leader. But he was fighting for freedom even in the face of an irresistible tide. He finally gave himself up in 1886 when a whole quarter of the US Army had been deployed to capture him and his band of just 40 men. Geronimo spent the last 23 years of his life as a prisoner of war, still yearning for the freedom of his people. In 1905, four years before his death, he attended Theodore Roosevelt's inauguration as president and took the opportunity to appeal to him to return the Chiricahuas to their ancestral lands. I pray you to cut the ropes and make me free, he said. But Roosevelt refused, fearing another outbreak of war. Geronimo died in 1909, and the Chiricahua nation was eventually released from its prisoner of war status in 1913. It seems that freedom is so powerful that it does drive humans to resist and fight even in the face of what appear to be staggering odds. Almost as soon as the French government capitulated under the onslaught of Hitler's blitzkrieg in 1940, French men and women began forming underground units to resist their new occupiers. As a whole, they became known, of course, as the French Resistance. The French Resistance stood in marked contrast to the collaborators of the Vichy regime. Independent French nationhood was under existential threat 
and ordinary French people took up the mantle that their government had thrown aside. For most of the war, it's estimated that the French resistance numbered 40,000 men and women. But by 1944, those numbers had mushroomed to 100,000. Simone Seguin was one. At just 17 years old, this young woman joined the resistance, at first carrying messages between groups. But by the time she was 18 in 1944, she was involved in blowing up railways and assisting the Allies in liberating French cities. Other French resistance fighters assassinated German officers, provided vital intelligence on German military installations, and sabotaged factories and communications. It was incredibly dangerous, and around 40,000 French resistance fighters lost their lives during the war, the majority of them shot by the Gestapo after having been tortured. Similar stories occurred right across occupied Europe, and there were large resistance movements in Holland, Italy, Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union. All of them were prepared to take the huge risks in the name of national freedom. Today, freedom remains elusive for many. Millions of Uyghur Muslims in China are forcibly encamped in what the Chinese call re-education camps. But escapees and defectors talk of systematic abuse, rape and indefinite incarceration. China also still claims Taiwan as its indisputable territory, a hangover of the Chinese Civil War when Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists fled to the island in the wake of the communist victory. Modern-day Taiwan says that it's an independent, sovereign nation. China says it's a breakaway province and is determined one day to reclaim it. So far, the United States has guaranteed its freedom. And you can argue that even 60 years after British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan spoke of the winds of change as Africa threw off colonial rule, that most of the people of Africa remain unfree today. The Cato Institute publishes an annual Human Freedom Index measuring and comparing nations' levels of freedom on 76 indicators like the rule of law, freedom of expression and women's rights. In its latest index, of the 41 nations defined as the least free in the world, 25 come from the continent of Africa. Let's remember then how precious freedom is. It is not enjoyed in full or at all by many today, and still others find it threatened. And where freedom is found, it has usually been bought with the blood and tears of our ancestors. After all, the lack of freedom has often been, and is likely to be again, one of the main reasons behind why we fight. Join us next time for something that has fired imaginations and inspired epic poetry. Something that men have fought over for millennia. Women. As always, thanks for listening. See you then.